Oh, supply chain management in the drug industry. That's it. I knew, I knew, oh, that's the name of the book. So, I mean, look, Headley, first of all, thank you so much for coming here. <laughs> Very welcome. We tried this online right at the beginning um, when I was starting to learn about podcasting and to be honest, kind of balls it up. <laughs> <laughs> but you're here now and I really appreciate you coming a long way away. Uh, you and I are in same kind of pickle. We're not earning much money these days. <laughs> so driving all the way from Wales is no mean undertaking. You know, that's a big, big um, sacrifice for you and your wife coming down here, staying the night before some inn. Um, so thank you so much. Can you just, let's start with, um, just introduce yourself because you're, you were in the pharmaceutical industry and the supply chain. What does that actually mean? Yeah, a good question. It's easy for me to assume people understand and it's good to have the opportunity to... Assume I know nothing. Okay, okay. I know know nothing. Yeah. Well, I always direct people to other supply chains, like for an iPhone or for an aircraft, or people tend to understand you have these various stages, you have components that you start off with. Mm. And to know what components to use, you have to go through a development process. Mm -hmm. So then you have to put the various stages together, the components, the sub-assemblies, the larger assemblies that they go into. And then if it was an aircraft, you'd have final assembly. Now, typically, it takes three or four years to do the development work. You're testing in wind tunnels and flight simulation, all that sort of thing. Mm. Then you come up with a design that you lock into, and then you build the full commercial supply chain from there. And typically that's a six or seven year undertaking. So, yeah. How long have you worked in, in this pharmaceutical supply chain industry? Uh, 40 years. I'm ashamed to admit that. but no. 40? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, So you got a little bit of experience. Just a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, I'm having difficulty because everyone feels that med- medicines and medicinal products are made by scientists or doctors. Yeah. They, I have no credibility whatsoever when I'm talking about the development and manufacture of drugs. Everyone wants me to call to be a doctor, uh, no, a, a PhD doctor. And actually, the amount of science involved in developing, manufacturing, and distributing drugs is very limited. Most of it is engineering and technology. So I qualified as a production engineer mm. where you were taught how to make things and you know deliver them. It's very focused on outputs and so I think in terms of systems, and I've just signed just a, you know I just signed a contract with Wiley in New Jersey to write the next book, which is going to be called "Transforming the Pharmaceutical Supply Chain." Amazing. And that it's uh, Wiley is an ed, uh, academic publisher, so mm-hmm. this is to educate graduates, professionals, and people in pharmaceutical sciences on how you actually build, manage, and uh, uh, improve supply chains. And, and that's my next mission in, in, in life. 
So before before COVID kicked off, a lot of people looked at you as a kind of guru. Am I right? Because you wrote the seminal textbook on supply chain. Am I right? You were oh, you're, absolutely. You were yeah. held in high esteem. You were invited to conferences and meetings and asked to talk. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, um, once I wrote the book, uh, as I say, it's 450 pages and explains exactly how drugs are developed, the regulations, everything about the industry you would need to know, and about best practices in supply chain management in other sectors. So we're talking about companies like Toyota, Toyota Production System, the advanced exemplar sectors that have really sharp, well-designed supply chains. And um, people would come to me and say, well, this is, you know, this is it. I wish we could do this, but the industry doesn't work that way. You know, it's, it's been the dark ages and the whole thing. And I would say, well, you know, don't be pessimistic because there's no difference between developing a drug, a medicinal product, as, as to developing and manufacturing any other physical product that has to be um, delivered to consumers who want to use the product. And if you don't keep your consumers happy, potentially you're going to lose your business. Mm. That is one law of business. You have to focus on the people uh, using your products. So so after the book launched, I joined the um, advisory board of a, 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 a a cold chain management company called Marken, which was the top um, company doing cold chain management, which is, you know, shipping in dry ice and all this, all the things you have to do when you move these drugs. Cold chain. Cold chain. It's yeah. your Welsh accent. Cold chain. <laughs> oh yeah, cold chain, like cold play, only cold chain. Yeah, yeah. and um, so and, and Marken then was uh, acquired by UPS Healthcare. So I went round large parts of the US and Europe giving presentations with the head of regulatory and I sort of educated them in supply chain management uh, in in doing that. But then when it when people realize this is actually not going to make you more profitable it's going to make you more sustainable in that if you do work with the best practices of supply chain management, then you're going to build loyal customers and you're going to have business uh, uh, keep coming in. So let, can we go back to pharmaceutical yeah. supply chain and drug development? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, with pharmaceutical, there's two types of products in the pharma industry, what they call small molecule, which... Uh, like aspirin, paracetamol, uh, products made by industrial chemistry, what they call um, chemical synthesis. Um, they're fairly stable. You know, they last two to five years. You you could look at the shelf life uh, on on the pack in the pharmacy, and the the whole industry was founded on small molecule products. Right. But because they're relatively simple, it's a one-size-fits-all situation as well. So, you know, other than languages, there's nothing different between aspirin in the U.S., Europe, Brazil, or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the supply chain was never challenged in any particular way in terms of temperature and the outside environment. When biologics came along, 
These are products made by um, uh, from living things. Mm-hmm. Uh, cancer treatments like Herceptin, which is a monoclonal antibody, you know, they were approved and began to work. Suddenly, there, there was a big growth in biologics. But of course, with biologics, they made from living cells or plants or, or whatever. In terms of manufacture, they're very difficult to manufacture. They are very large molecules. So biologics, large molecules, every process that makes what appears to be the same product makes a different product because the living thing reacts with the vessels that it's mixed in. It reacts with the tubing, the piping that it's transferred in, mm. and it reacts with its environment, particularly temperature. So um, you can lose a biologic in the blink of an eye if it goes outside its temperature and you have to run trials to to see the temperatures that that uh, pr- product survives in and the temperatures it doesn't survive in. And typically, it's been refrigerated for a finished product, plus two to plus eight degrees centigrade. Um, so the, the wholesalers and distributors, they've got fridges properly validated. Uh, so they've always been able to deal with those lower temperatures of biologics. But even so, they're incredibly difficult to manufacture. They've got these issues of, of as I said, temperatures. They could also change potency depending on the source of the starting material. So when we're talking about... Biologics. We're also talking about things like you know stem cell injections. We're talking yep. about PRP injections. We're talking about vaccines as well, or vaccines. Yeah, yeah we're talking about vaccines. So yeah. the non-biological ones are things like aspirin, paracetamol, you know, water tablet, diuretic tablet, all yep. that kind of stuff. Um, another biologic would be an insulin injection. Yeah, yeah. Insulin is a classic. It's one of the first biologics uh, that came along. So, so let's go back. Let's go back to drug development. So, when you get a drug, right? Um, some people are in a lab somewhere in some university or something. They're doing some research. There's a problem. There's a condition. There's a disease, and they want to find a treatment for it. So, talk me through that. What's what's going on? Talk me through the whole stage. What happens? So, you've got lab testing, research taking place. Yeah, this first stage is discovery research. Discovery where research. You discover a molecular compound, typically called a compound. And um, the small molecule compounds is pretty easy. You draw the chicken wire dia- uh, diagram that chemists very often draw. And you say, okay, we've got this compound. That's the molecular structure. Mm. This is the mechanism of action. This is what we think is going to happen in the body that will allow this compound to to, uh, uh, cure or help this particular disease, what you call an indication. Effect change in some way, yeah. Yeah, effect change in some some way, yeah. It is a theory, and that is a big issue because um, it's one thing coming up with a theory, it's another thing proving that it works. But you have to assume it's an unknown substance, and... If someone came up to you in the street and said, I've got this unknown substance here, will you eat it? Mm. It's highly likely you say, no thanks. No thanks. Show me, the, show me the data, show me the data. So you have to go through into the development stage then. So the R&D is basically a theory. You have to prove by development it actually does something to the disease, or it's called an indication. That's mm-hmm. uh, what you'd be familiar with, obviously. Um 
So the first stage is uh, preclinical testing, mm-hmm. uh, either testing in animal models or you can test what they call in silico, which is uh, using computer simulation, and you can test in tissue as well. And um, But the preferred method of the industry is testing in animal models. So this is the thing people miss. You have to manufacture an amount of the compound, actually manufacture with the supply chain, to then test that on, on animal models by administering the, the compound to animals. And then you have to write study reports, all the bloods and all the pharmac- pharmacodynamics of what was happening inside the animal. That has to be written up uh, scientifically. Mm. And this takes months. You know, imagine these animals are kept, they, you know, they, they have to meet certain st- uh, standards called good laboratory practice. So it's all GMP. The, this is GLP, yeah. GLP. Yeah, GLP, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and it's not just one study, it's lots of different study. And for these more advanced therapies, biologically advanced therapies, you have to do studies on immunogenicity, uh, obviously really complex toxicology studies. Uh, before you go into humans, and, and typically, even for the small molecule product, that takes three years. Yeah, so even the small molecules, if you're giving it to animals, I guess you have to you have to make sure there's a quality control issue and you've got standardization because you're experimenting on, say, animals and batches of animals. You want to make sure that what you're giving, administrating to these animals is consistently the same product, the same dose, the same quality, no contamination. Because if, if if you're producing something and just administrating it to these animals and it actually varies in itself, how do you know the effect you're seeing is the effect of the drug or not just because of the variation within natural production of this small mm. molecule agent? So you have to have a quality control is what you're saying. And then robust studies. Because I guess if you're putting this drug into an animal, you want to see, first of all, does it do anything? Is there anything beneficial? How quickly does the, the drug clear from the body? Where does it go in the body? What is this the lowest safe limit? What is the high safe limit? What's the toxic level? Um, does it have? And I mean, do you do studies like reproduction studies on these animals? Like what effect oh, has it? Absolutely. I mean, again, the regulations will dictate things exactly. But for um, the more advanced therapies, again, there are regulations what they call non-clinical and quality regulations. So non-clinical means that it's the combination of the supply chain and the safety of the, of the compound. So you, you can't just test one batch of drug and say that's safe and assume every other batch is going to be safe. Mm. You, you, you actually have to test on the drug that's been actually physically made and prove that that process with those specifications was tested and it was proven safe. And it's ex- particularly for biologics and advanced therapies, that's very, uh, very complex because it's one thing for the small molecule working at what the drug does to the body and the body does to the drug. Mm. But when you go to something that's inherently variable anyway, which is very, very difficult to manufacture consistently to the same standard, then the risks of things going wrong are really high. 
So the companies that manufacture these have to be absolutely, you know, top skilled, and they have to be inspected by the regulatory authorities to prove that they are working to the right standards. Now, with the uh, with the work in animal models, they have what they call the first batch is what they call a dirty batch. Mm. It's as unclean as they can possibly make it. Oh, okay. So that if it passes safety testing in animal models, it's only going to get cleaner and more likely to be to get approved. So it's a common term in the in in, in the industry when you develop in a, a drug. You mm. talk about making. The dirty batch. Now that's a bit terrific, and it is actually actually true. Um, and once, if you prove that drug is safe, you then have to manufacture to a higher standard, which is good manufacturing practice. That's it. Yeah. Before you go into humans, so you cannot go into and that standard of manufacture is an order of magnitude higher than it is for animal models. So, yeah, I got that. So, so we've done. The discovery we've done now the basic animal studies and the toxicology and the biodistribution and reproduction and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What happens next? What kind of studies? What What's the next level of testing? Uh, Did you hear about phases? Phases. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, phase one is the first uh, testing in humans, and you have to get approval from the regulators called a clinical trial approval in Europe. It's called uh, an IND in the in, in, in the investigation of new drugs. What regulator do they need approval from? Uh, either European Medicines Agency, MHRA, for a CTA. In the US, it's the FDA, the Food okay. and Drug. Uh, so they know right from the beginning what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they have to insist that companies work to the regulations a print for supply chain, it's, it's there. Everything has to be manufactured to GMP. And there's a book two inches thick, or not, maybe an inch and a half thick in the, in the UK from MHRA, which lists all the responsibilities that these companies have for, for developing the drugs. Okay. So, so phase one is you collect healthy volunteers, normally in a building where there's Game Boy and beds, and very often it's students who want to earn a few bob. Uh, they go on there. They're happy to spend two weeks, um, you know, uh, in, in, in the bed while they are sort of given the medications and they, they tested to see what's do- doing to them. But phase one will only prove safety. The, almost invariably, you cannot get much of a measure of the effect of the drug on the indication, how effective it is. Yeah, because these are, I take it, these are healthy kids. They don't have a disease. They don't have a no. condition. So if a drug is to check if it's working or not, you need to give it to people who have actually got the condition. So th- at this stage, now you're giving it to young, healthy people to make sure that, what, they don't die? <laughs> they don't get sick? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there have been instances of people having very severe reactions in phase phase one. because, oh, wow. um, Yeah. But it's a bit... It's a bit ridiculous because uh, I think it's ridiculous because you have companies with a press release saying, hallelujah, our compound has got through phase one testing. Okay, so it's it's safe, but sugar's safe. <laughs> Marmalade is safe, as so, far as we know. I mean, you could word it the other way around. Hey, our drug, experimental drug, didn't kill everyone. 
Well, you could, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's sure. another way of spinning it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, great for you. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, so the next stage then is a phase 2A. No, just, just oh, go, go back to that phase 1. Do these yeah. young kids know they're taking something completely random that might kill them? No, they they won't because they're focused on the $2,000 or pounds they'd get for doing the the time that they have to. And um, But it's there in the small print. Oh, I'm sure it will be, yeah. I've never, I've ne- I have to assure you, I've never done this, but uh, <laughs> it, it will be in the small print, yeah. Okay, so yeah. you've not killed these young kids playing computer games in a, in a, in a building um, after two weeks. So, so now phase two, what happens there? Uh, it's in two phases. Phase 2A, or two, two stages. Phase 2A is what they call dose ranging studies. So they give people with the indication, with the disease, various levels of the dose. And they work out which is the most effective. And that obviously, that's they use statistics and uh, they take in all these the sort of measurements of from the blood and all, all the measurements they need to take. And at the end of a phase 2A study, and this may be twice as many patients on that as were on the phase 1 study or 3, um, but uh, once they know the the the, the effective dose they want to go with. And that, in a sense, is a bit guesswork as well, to be honest. Uh, once they've got that, then they can go into a phase 2B study where they test that dose level, the dose regimen, you know, how, how many times you take it, once a day, twice a day, or, or whatever. And um, that then gives them statistical they call it the end point uh, at the end of the study at the end at the end point you work out if you've got a drug or not whether it's safe and effective and then you get press releases saying hallelujah this drug didn't kill people <laughs> and we think it works but um we've still got a long way to go because mm. you've got the phase three study so the phase three study is a much bigger study typically run all over the world or um in large parts of the world and the aim there is to prove that run pivotal studies that prove the drug is safe and effective and has to be made to the correct quality and this is where people very often f- don't understand the fact the quality is part of the whole assessment of the drug. And by quality, I mean chemistry, manufacturing, and controls. Mm. So, so that is module three of three models that have to be submitted to get a drug approved. First, the, uh, the first one is module three, chemistry, manufacturing, and controls. It effectively is all the companies in the supply chains, the materials, the specifications, the testing methods have to be submitted to the regulators so they can confirm that these companies are up to the job of making these drugs too good manufacturing practice. Module four is safety, mm. which is um, toxicology and anything to do with the patient's safety. And module five is a clinical module. And throughout all of the I won't go into the, the vaccine particularly, but, you know, the focus is very much, if it's very much on the clinical aspects, you're missing out the really crucial elements, which is the time taken to build the supply chain, put it in place, test the materials first to make sure it's safe in animals, then make sure it's safe in humans. The time to, do, to bring a drug to market, that's the limiting step is the time to manufacture 
the de- poster development batches and then the full-scale commercial batches. So, <clears throat> Yeah, because there's one thing making a drug in a small quantity in, for labs. There's another thing producing like millions and tons of something. That, I mean, the chemical reactions must be different. The whole process must be different. I mean, there's a, it's a whole big engineering thing. So how long does it normally take for a drug to come to market from the moment it was discovered and comes to market? On average, what, what's the normal time? Well, the U.S. Government Accountability Office wrote the report November 2006, which says preclinical is three years, preclinical, clinical is seven years, and it takes the regulator, FDA, European Medicine Agency, one and a half years to assess the application. Now, that's the key piece, that the regulator needs a long, long time to look at all the data that's been submitted and say, we've inspected all the, all the manufacturers. We've made sure that the materials you're using aren't toxic or they aren't you know, banned in certain countries. We'll make sure that your people are properly trained to do this. And we'll make sure all the elements of good manufacturing practice and the way you distribute the drugs have all been done to the regulations. So that, that's about 11 and a half, 12 years. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how many drugs that are actually researched and are being, you know, um, developed, actually end up becoming a profitable, successful therapeutic drug? Uh, one in 250. One in 250? Yeah. So all yeah. the other ones end up in a dead end? Yeah. No wonder the whole thing is so expensive. Oh, absolutely. They claim $2.6 billion to develop a drug. At least $2 billion is waste. Wow. Yeah. So, okay, so when they say a drug takes, you know, 2.7 billion, most of that was all the other 200 that didn't get anywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, and I, I, so now let's, let's move to the COVID vaccines. So you're telling me 11, 12 years it takes for something to get developed, discovery, go through all the trials, supply chain, quality control, toxicology distribution you name it it goes on and on on the list and then the regulatory process so, <laughs> over a decade what how the frack did this warp speed business happen and all these companies suddenly came out with a vaccine in three four months six months whatever how did that happen well the regulators weren't involved <laughs> or if you know there is an acknowledged evidence-based um uh, I, I've just explained it to you that, that that's an evidence-based uh, uh, explanation of how drug development works. When it doesn't work that way, when it happens in the time it did, less than 12 months, and you've got, you know, people in the industry saying, oh, we changed the genetic code, and now we've got another vaccine coming out. Well, you know, pull the other one because, you know, it's got bells on. That's It's complete lies has to be explain that to me what do you mean well on top of these not being small molecule drugs they are biologics so the the whole um if it takes 12 10 to 12 years for a small molecule drug the the u.s government accountability office uh, data was 2006 that will have been mainly small molecule drugs these days you expect uh, the number of failures and the issues being 
much more extreme with biologics, and yet they've come to market in this less than 12 months. Now, I, I, so I, how's, how's that possible? What, how, how could that have happened? Oh, they must have ignored all the regulations. Uh, and I could tell so, you. I so was, have they skipped key steps? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like oh. what? Well, like, <laughs> it's almost so ludicrous. Um, tell me. Well, they can't have done any preclinical testing. They can't have tested in animal models because uh, even the most basic uh, safety testing in animal models would have taken three or four years. So that's a conspiracy theory and you're fact-checked because apparently there were three animal studies at least, but there were very basic animal studies from what I saw. They, yeah. they put some stuff down their lungs, they washed it around, then they gave the vaccine, then they said, oh, there's antibodies and they killed all the animals. And I was like, great. So I was really confused when I read those papers. I was like, that's a, that's a weird study. So you didn't check where the drug went. You didn't say which part of the body it went. You remember they said it's going to stay in your arm? Oh, yes, yeah. They, they didn't, the Japanese they didn't, study, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they didn't tell us, like, where did it go in the body? What effect did it have on the on the animal's babies? Were there any teratogenic effects or, you know, yeah, yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff? That's where, yeah. you know... Um, they didn't tell us about safety levels of dose of the vaccine or, or the maximum dose. They didn't say how you could reverse the vaccine or switch it off. <laughs> they, they didn't do any of these animals. There were animal studies. There were, but they were so pathetic that I, even me, a dumb orthopod, was like, what the hell? This is it? This is your, this is the animal studies? Like, ridiculous. So there were animal studies done, but they weren't very good. Yeah, I should add to that that every time you scale up the process, and there will have had to be multiple scale-ups, <clears throat> yeah. you have to rerun the safety studies in animals. Of course you do. Because the drug, yeah. the composition of the, the drug could change. You have what they call polymorphs. Um, but it's not just polymorphs. Any change in the process can change the clinical performance of the drug, and it could even make a safe drug toxic at, at a higher scale. And it's hard to believe how many scale-ups they must have gone through to get to the billions of doses that they actually delivered. And there would have been no animal studies, safety studies run on those. And do you know much about the original Pfizer study, the Pfizer trial? Well, not the clinical. I know the supply chain because uh, the supply chain was made by a company called Wyeth Biopharma. The first 33 batches were made uh, in in the US in Andover, Wyeth uh, Biopharma Solutions. And Pfizer never made a biologics in his oh, life. Hold on one second. I thought I thought this uh, it was Pfizer and Moderna that make all the drugs. No. Oh, no, no. None of these companies have ever made a biologic drug. Not uh, Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech, particularly not BioNTech because it's you know it's the size of our size of our corner shop. Uh, Dude, hold on one second. What are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about BioNTech is just a group of business people who are pulling the levers. Uh, so they submitted the, for the Pfizer application. They submitted the application to market the drug, but they don't have the skills to do all the work that I've said, and they certainly don't have the manufacturing facilities. But I thought they had big shiny factories and that's where it's all made. So where is it made if it's not them? Well, okay, I'll, at the start, it was made by uh, a company that Pfizer bought in 2009 called Wyeth Biopharma. 
Now, I've looked at that company and it's R&D. It, it's not capable of manufacturing to good, good manufacturing. What's the name of the company again? Wyeth Biopharma. Wyeth, Wyeth Biopharma. Okay, yeah. carry on. And they're in Andover. So if, well, I've looked at the website. and Andover, is, Massachusetts. All right, okay. Wyeth. Yeah. And uh, they were in biologics, but since Pfizer bought them, because... You know, these companies, they've seen the growth of biologics and they've bought biologic companies, but they don't have the the sort of history of, of developing biologics. They don't have the innate skills that are needed. So you have to wonder um, how much, how well were these made to good manufacturing practice? So we know from various uh, documents that are now public domain, they were leaked in, uh, originally, that the first 33 lots of the Pfizer vaccines had abnormally high levels of uh, adverse events. And we also know that those first 33 batches were made at Wyeth Biopharma in Andover, Massachusetts. And they are not capable, in my professional opinion, they are not capable, they don't have the skills to manufacture to the tight regulations of good manufacturing practice. So it says over here, Wyeth was a pharmaceutical company until it was purchased by Pfizer in 2009. So they might argue that there is no Wyeth Biopharma, it is Pfizer. Oh, it is. What I'm saying is, the facility, though, that they bought yeah. is not capable of making biologics to the good manufacturing practice standard because it's mainly an R&D facility. It's, if you list at all the things they offer in terms of services, yeah. it's mainly R&D. And a site has to be exclusively GMP because you have to segregate materials to stop contamination. You know, it's highly controlled, whereas... R&D is more experimental. So, so um, in terms of other companies, there's a company in Germany called Rentschler. Wow, wow. So I'm just reading oh. up. Do you know Pfizer bought Wyeth for $68 billion? And they did it so that Pfizer could diversify into vaccines and injectable biologic medicines by adding Wyeth's big-selling Prevner vaccine for childhood infections an Enbro rheumatoid arthritis treatment. So they were obviously, it's one of these big companies that says, I, I want to go into this market. Let's just gobble mm. up another competition and consume it. Yeah. And the usual thing happened. The good people at Wyeth left because I, I've known people who worked at Wyeth. Okay. And they, they, they were not a bad outfit and they had a, a, a site down in the south, uh, southeast of England. Um, the good people left, and so you had the people of Pfizer. I'm not sort of degrading them, but you know they hadn't, they didn't have a history in biologics. The people who had the experience probably left, particularly over that length of time. So you've got a company that doesn't really understand biologics is actually owning the facilities that are are making them, and that's a recipe for. So, so does Pfizer make their own vaccines then? Do they, do they make their own drugs? They have. Well, we know that. No, no, they don't. They don't. And the research that's being done, the animal testing, the clinical trials, aren't, isn't this all under the, 
umbrella of like the pharmaceutical companies or are they outsourcing? Oh, uh, that's all fully outsourced, all fully outsourced, the contract. If we take Moderna as an example, because they uh, don't have any facilities at all that they bought of anyone. We know that Lonza in Switzerland manufactures the what they call the drug substance or the active ingredient for the Moderna vaccine. Biggest contract manufacturer in the world, uh, uh, probably the best in biologics in terms of expertise, but they aren't. They work on a fee-for-service basis. What's so their name again? Lonza, L-O-N-Z-A. Okay, Lonza. Okay. I, I've they've been a former client of mine, and uh, I, I'm not. I know quite a lot of the people involved in this, and um, I'm not saying they're bad people, but I'm saying that things haven't work to the way they normally should. All right, so carry on. So Lonza Biologics, they're the ones actually manufacturing, they're the contract developer, and they're the ones making it for Moderna. We know, yeah, because there's a press release to that effect. So that's public domain. Uh, it's on the Lonza website, and uh, it's on the Moderna website as well, I think. Okay. Um, and then the, the company that fills the drug, Substance. This is like a liquid that's uh, been created from animal cells. Lonza send those to the next uh, stage, which would be cattle and farmer solutions. Uh, initially in blo in Bloomington, this is the initial supply chain to get to get things going. Cattle and farmer solutions are the second largest contract development organization in the world. Again, a former client of mine, and. Uh, they had an FDA inspection 12, 18 months ago, and the report, the, the, when you get an FDA inspection, three or four inspectors go in, and they go through the plant from start to finish. And although the, uh, an FDA always put these inspections, the results are what they call a Form 483, and uh, that inspection form showed mass uh, non-compliances with quality, such as shipping products before they'd been passed, not recalling products that they knew had failed, but not not recalling them. Uh, and I've got, and again, this is public domain. The F, all FDA four eight threes are on their website, and you can you can see them. And if you just have to read that, and you think this was out of control, these people didn't know what they were doing, and, and that's what the so. That, and that was recorded by a well-known uh, industry uh, journal called Fierce Pharma. And the, the Form 43 is there, and they've described the, the comments from the, the, the FDA inspectors, which are horrible. <laughs> so Moderna is contracting to Lonza, and what else? So they don't actually physically make the vaccine? No, no, no. But we, we know the U in the UK, they, I think, there's an R and D site being built for Moderna, but they, no, they are a very, very small company. You know, they, they, they they've never um, ever manufactured anything or developed a drug. So Moderna's never manufactured or developed a drug prior to this mRNA no. jab. No, no. Wasn't there some cancer treatment they'd done or something? Or uh, they'd run a phase one study in my, myeloma, you know, which but <laughs> cancer treatment, but. And again, I've documented this in my Substack. It, it's they they went from running a phase one study 
And we know phase one only proved safety, so it was not proof of efficacy. Then, suddenly, all these companies started to invest in Moderna about 2013, 2014, 2015, and suddenly they, they, were, they appeared to be a giant company. But they... Like how many people did they employ? Oh, I, I, I always look at the website. And, and if all the people on there have got shirts, ties, and they look like business people, I know there's nothing underneath. You know what I mean? When you sort of, if you work in industry, you know that you know who you would expect to see on a site, and you won't see the manufacturing people. So it's the same with BioNTech. You look at the website, and these companies are springing up all over the place. You look at the website, and you see about you know you have a chief business officer, obviously you have a chief executive, you have a chief financial officer, you'll have a, a chief of something else, and. People would assume that underneath them, all these sort of, all these people making things, but actually it's all outsourced. And this started 40, the outsourcing started 40 years ago. So the companies selling the drugs are not the ones who've developed them or, or, or making them. And that's, um, that is the, the key issue here. So it says over here, Moderna's. Um, planning to hire about 2,000 employees by 2023, and they have now about um, 3,900 employees. What do they all do? No, no idea, but I know they don't, uh, they don't get involved in drug development or manufacture in any meaningful way. And, and I'd be happy to sort of go along to one of their sites and say, I was wrong. I, you've got all these people and look, they work into good manufacturing practice and good distribution practice. Mm. Um, the regulators should have done that already, but I don't know that they... So all have. these big shiny companies are actually outsourcing everything, all their drug development, their research, their R&D. Wasn't there some Brooke Jackson? She was a whistleblower, if you're saying. Yeah, yeah, Octavia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, Brooke, I, I mean, I've got to know over the years I've interviewed it so what was that all about was that an ex ex example of that where there was a contracted uh, um, research unit and yeah you know it wasn't just one contractor the main contractor was a company called Icon who took responsibility for all the clinical trials but Icon outsourced the the the, um, the sites to another company called Ventavia <laughs> and Ventavia were <laughs> They were recruiting their own employees onto the onto the studies. What? Oh, you wouldn't believe what they were doing, and they were using incentives to keep people to join the study. Well, you know, Brooke, uh, she's still in litigation, isn't she, with 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 Pfizer? But she absolutely knew her stuff. She was a professional in clinical uh, clinical research, and he, two days after she was there as a senior uh, leader there, she said. There's something badly wrong here. So you, you can see how divorced this company is from Pfizer, who, well, actually, BioNTech submitted the application. So, uh, and it was joint between BioNTech and, and, and Pfizer. But then the Icon are doing the clinical work, and another company are doing the work on getting people onto the clinical trial, uh, recruiting them, and, and looking after them, and taking the bloods and all that sort of thing. And they've got no, there's no ownership of what's going on because they're all getting paid a fee for service. 
you know, all these contractors are paid a fee for service, so they get paid whether the drug passes or fails. So and now we've got private. You know, we know that private equity have been buying up these contractors, and they are he- investing heavily in the 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 service infrastructure in the industry. You know, clinical services, um, contract manufacturing services, and it's all about return on investment. So the industry has really focused on massive returns on investment, irrespective of whether drugs are approved, whether they're safe, whether that that whole thing. So it's really, really worrying. So just driven by money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, look, we need to go back. I feel like we've gone off piece a bit. So, these mRNA jabs rushed through. I'm still struggling in my head how Pfizer, Moderna, with no one really behind the scenes, how they came up with a vaccine so quickly. I mean, I think the Moderna chief executive or whatever was actually even saying how they never actually had any virus. It was all just a computer code and they just plugged it in and made this modified RNA. It's not, it's not mRNA. It's, it's actually fake RNA. It's this, they've replaced a, a base pair with pseudoridine or whatever. So it doesn't get degraded by the body. Um, how, how did they all just suddenly come up with this vaccine? Like they just knew what the code was going to be and everything. And then I don't understand it. Was there uh, some conspiracy and it was all pre-planned a year or two in advance and they knew what they were going to do or was it literally just rushed out? Well, if I can tell you what I know uh, from my personal experience, after just not long after I wrote the book um, in 2011, 2013, I was asked by someone working with the office for life sciences to help a company based in Oxford, Oxford Biomedica, with um, what they called a government uh, advanced manufacturing supply chain initiative. It was across all industry sectors. And I was told that there'd been two rounds of this funding call and the life sciences companies had failed because the bids were framed like they were scientists, not engineers or people thinking about producing things. So would I spend four days uh, consultancy time finding a company to apply for this, a life sciences company? And when I went along to the launch of round three, which Michael Fallon then was host, you know, he was he gave the opening address. I was on the table with someone with the chairman of Oxford Biomedica. And I knew that because he, he was mentioning biotech. And I said, oh, gosh, you know, he said, oh, yes. Well, I said, well, I've come here to find a company to apply for this. So and um, he said, well, come along and speak to us. So I went along to Oxford Biomedica in Oxford. And they said, yeah, we like what you're, you, you, you're going to do for us. Uh, so they took me on for six months consultancy. I recruited the Heart of England NHS Trust into the, the bid to give a, an end-user customer perspective and Cranford University to do the modelling that, that was going to be necessary. And the cell and gene th- therapy catapult was involved as well. I, I'm not, I wasn't involved with that. They were working independently. But that is a, a, a UK body funded by um, UK t- 
they're funded by the, 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 the government or they're funded in some way and their role is to grow gene therapy and cell therapy in the in in the UK by working with these companies. So anyway, to cut a long time short, um we framed the bid, it went in and it was awarded seven point one million pound award to Oxford Biomedica. And um and then after that the UK government office for life sciences came along to the the, the, the sort of wrap up meeting at the end. And they were really impressed by the whole gene therapy thing and what was going on. And uh, I was invited a few months later <clears throat> to a meeting in London, which was which was hosted by um, by a government official. GSK were there, the Child Gene Therapy Catapult, other people involved. And I, I, I was sort of, I spoke up to say, look, I, I don't think you understand how difficult this is. You know, gene therapy is not magic. And the following month, I was, you know, I was let go. I was, I was basically fired. And, you know, I didn't know anything after that until this all started. And I suddenly realized how, how's what had been going on with the MHRA, with the cell and gene therapy catapult and UK government in pushing gene therapies. So, when we had the What's vaccine, that? What's, sorry, I'm sorry, your accent. What's the name? The, the gene catapult? What was Oh, it? it's the cell and gene therapy cell catapult. Cell and. Cell <laughs> and. Gene therapy catapult. There are about nine catapults in the UK, one for you know different industry sectors. Cell and gene therapy has got a catapult. So the, the, the term catapult means we will help catapult companies to become successful. Okay. Cells, as in like human cells. Cell and, yes. Cell and gene catapult. Gene therapy catapult. Gene therapy catapult. So they really want to push this, don't they? Yeah. The current chairman was on the vaccine task force, which was chaired by Sir Richard Sykes, who was the CEO of Glaxo for many years. So no conflict of interest there. No conflict of interest. uh, the chair previously worked for GSK as their head of supply chain. Well, I met him in 2012, Ian Um So, and UK, with MHRA, uh, were the first country in the world to approve the first jabs, were the Pfizer jabs. And every job that's been approved has been the MHRA first, followed by in lockstep almost. So this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's absolutely true. And if you look at the timescale that Oxford Biomedica's manufacturing facilities were approved by MHRA without ever going there, without ever inspecting the facilities, it was like about three or four months. Normally that would take three or four years. So it's horrific. So uh, when MHRA says it's an enabler of this, absolutely it is. It's still not inspecting any sites. It could inspect, uh, you know, there are mutual uh, recognition agreements between all the regulators where they can share inspections. So that FDA inspection where um, there's been two bad inspections, you know, when I say bad, the company's been bad, that MHRA could go to FDA and said, oh, we can use your inspections to say, they can't, you know, they can't sell the products manufactured there in, in, in the UK. None of that's been happening at all. 
So they're not doing their job? No, no, absolutely not. They're not doing their job of regulating and protecting the public? No, absolutely not. And making sure the products are safe? They're just going by whatever the company tells them? Yeah, yeah, there's the sort of the companies and even the contractors are part of it. They have to be because they are the ones actually making it. So they've known they've been breaching the regulations in a you know by more than five orders of magnitude. It's uh, and why and why are they not? And they're just they don't care because they're getting paid. They're getting paid a big fat amount of money. Yeah, yeah. is it as simple as that? It is as simple as that. Now, what, have you heard about this bait and switch that Pfizer was producing the first lot of vaccines that they used for their clinical trials in a certain manner, and yeah. then? For the mass rollout, they completely changed the way they produced the vaccine. Have you, do you yeah. know anything about that? Well, it's been given the name bait and switch, but really it's a fancy word for they started off with the process, you know, pretty raw, and there were emergency supplied made to get these launched as soon as possible. They didn't have the process right. And what was the process? The process is, is sort of like how you put the... No, no, I know. But what was the process? That first, the first batch. How were they making it, the vaccines? Like, what's the difference between the two? Uh, now, I don't go into, you know, the, the liquid nanoparticles and all that sort of thing because that is scientific. No, no. Wasn't there something about E. coli? Oh, DNA yeah. plasmids? Yeah, but... but, but this is don't focus on E. coli and plasmids or whatever. Focus on change because whenever you change something, you start off. They started off with this process, and it it wasn't doing the job for what they wanted to do, so they changed to this E. coli thing. But there were thousands of process changes. This may have been so. How many times did they change the process and created something that was toxic? Because scale-ups and all these different and variation in manufacture, all these things could have made these drugs, you know, gone from reasonably safe. Well, none of these were started off safe, to, to, to be honest. But I, I don't know why I'm ex- ex- explaining this, but any change in the supply chain has to go through retesting. No, and- I, I, so I get it. what you're saying. Like, what you're saying is, Ahmed, don't get bogged down in the details and the nitty gritty of what they changed and how they did it, that in itself actually isn't even relevant. What's relevant is the fact that the fact they made a change warranted everything going back to the drawing board, going through all the rigorous studies from, like you go back to the first, you go back Monopoly, you go back to the first square. Like you go straight back. You have to start all over again. And the problem is not only did they not do that, but they did these changes Lots of times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, you, that's exactly... That's what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so that in itself is enough evidence to to call foul. Yeah. And yeah. say, you're not doing your job properly and the regulators aren't holding these manufacturers to account. You can't be tinkering and changing the manufacturing and the contents and the ingredients because every single time you do... You need to justify and prove that it's safe, that you, you've gone through all the steps that we've outlined before, and they haven't done that. Yes, absolutely. So what do you think of the tagline, safe and effective? <laughs> it's, rid- rid- it's so ridiculous. Uh, 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 you know, it's, to me, it's so 
obvious. And I keep going back to this, the myth of penicillin, where people believe penicillin came to market yes. by accident. But actually, uh, if I've got time just to, just to go through this. Do it, do it. Um, Fleming found, he came back from the holidays, uh, August 1928, and he had all these petri dishes out, and in one of them, the compound in there appeared to be killing bacteria. Uh, but he didn't know what the active ingredient was. And it took him 11 years to find a, a, someone, a group of people, who could uh, isolate the active ingredient, and it was Oxford University. And they managed to isolate the active ingredient, and they could make small quantities, just gram quantities, to test in animals and in the field patients, and they proved it was actually working. But they couldn't make it in the quantities that were required, so they actually went to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, which was the forerunner to the FDA, in fact, and they spoke with some people there. One of them was a guy called Andrew J. Moyer, who was an expert in the manufacture of moles, and he devised a process using corn syrup liquor and sucrose or some, something else, and suddenly the yield uh, increased exponentially. And he devised the process. That was then given to a few large uh, companies, Merck, uh, I think Pfizer was one of them, and they could manufacture in ton quantities. But Moyer actually was awarded the patent or the patent for penicillin. So you can imagine if Fleming... Uh, Oxford University, Howard Florey uh, and others, and Moyer had been together at the start when uh, Fleming made that initial finding. Penicillin could have come to market in four years, but actually it took 16 years. And what we've got now is this disconnected development process where you start with R&D, then you hand it to the people to develop it, but they're not going to be selling it. Then you hand it to the people to do the commercial manufacture. And you know, it's so disconnected and disjointed. And, and that's the, the, the big issue now. We've got an industry that is so fragmented, uh, particularly in supply chain terms, but even connection with, with patients because the pharma companies sold off the wholesalers, the the companies, you know, the pharmacy, the or, or the, the supply chain, the distribution supply chain to patients, that's in the, you know, the healthcare system, they sold all those companies off. They were bought by companies like Boots Healthcare. And now they, they, these, the pharma companies have got no connection with the people who are buying their products. You know, they've got no feedback, no connection at all. But they, they don't really need that, do they? All they need to do is convince the politicians to mandate their drugs and products, and then they've got a market. And if you oh. and if you have vaccines and get them on childhood schedules, that's repeat business. Boom, 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 forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, you know about the vaccines? What are in these mRNA jabs? We know about the lipid nanoparticles. We know about the modified RNA. What else? Now they're talking about DNA fragments. When you say it's grown and living in tissue, grown in what? What are these things grown in? Well, it's uh, what they call cell lines, and these have to be kept at minus 193 degrees C in li liquid nitrogen. So you can imagine the first stage in the supply chain is No, to... no, no. Let's go back to oh, the cell on. lines. Oh, the, yeah. So where do they, these cell oh. lines can't be frozen? So what they're growing in cell lines, and where, where are these cell lines? I mean, because I spoke to Aaron Siri, and he was talking about aborted 
freshly aborted fetus tissue. Yeah, and and they need yeah. they need a regular supply of aborted oh, tissue. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. You know I'm just this? I'm just a dumb supply chain guy. I just think process, and so I know they. I mean, like even with sort of HCV and that, they get their samples. They may be collecting them from alcoholics in the back streets of New York, the, the donors, and you know, and. The management of donors and your traceability of donors should all be there. Um, so I know that has to happen. So there are, again, regulations about how you deal with, and if it's animals as well or babies, the donors have to be properly identified and the ethics applied to it. So, But I don't get into that. I just know that so happens. You, so you don't know anything about the manufacturing and whether they use aborted fetuses, fetuses oh, or not? I'm sure they do because, you know, how else are they going to... How else are they going to collect these things? But, you know, my focus is always the stages that it goes through. Um, I know, but, you know, you're in the manufacturing. You know about the business of m making these things. Like, how many, like, one aborted fetus, how much, how many drugs will that make? 10,000, 1,000? Like, how many of aborted fetus tissue do they need to manufacture and upscale like this? I've got no idea. No, I, I, I've got no idea. And if I did... I wouldn't be running supply chains. I'd be a scientist or, or they're not. Yeah, they, they'd be medically qualified in some ways. But these, these biobanks, you know, like I think MHRA is building a, a biobank at the moment. So you've got. What's these, a biobank? Biobank is these companies who just collect samples of everything human tissue, whether it's, and it could be embryos. Um, uh, uh, you know, people specialize in in having collection of, of, of all these things. But it's a specialist skill. You know, you, you have to know where to find these people. You have to have links with hospitals and even sort of, you know, um, other, uh, uh, you know, the, the mortuaries and all these places where you can get animal and human tissue. Um, I, as I say, I know it goes on. I, but I don't know the d detail. But I, what I do know is... Um, to collect these things must be incredibly difficult and there must be shortages. And, you know, when there's shortages, people make money. So this must, you know, in my mind, this would be another element of potential, you know, what they call price gouging, um, you know, to get, to get money. No, what do you mean by price gouging? It's a common term in the industry where if you charge an awful lot more, like um, I, I don't know if you remember the guy, um, he, he he went to jail, uh, Martin Screlly. He he found a, a drug called uh, Daraprim, and he realised only one company in the world made it. It was in shortage, and he bought the rights to the drug, and he increased the price. By five thousand percent, from I forget, uh, I like you know, from few dollars to few hundred dollars, or even a few thousand dollars. It's sort of uh, uh, documented. Squarely, Daraprim. Uh, I think he went to jail for the uh, period. But these are people who look for the opportunity. They found a shortage, and then this comes down to farmers, why? Right? Because they've outsourced so much, and they've also they drop a drug that they've got once it's outside the patent period they drop the drug and then you get four or five generic companies jumping in 
making the same drug. But now the generics companies have got so many drugs that they can dip into. They're being selective about what they make and what they don't. So they're dropping drugs now that they're not making a lot of profit on. But you've still got patients who are dependent, their lives potentially dependent on those drugs. And no one's bothered. So the big issue with Corelli was, I forget what the condition was, uh, Daraprim was for. That's fine. So, so can I ask, what about, um, oh, what did I, I wanted to ask you something. So going back to these mRNA jabs and whatnot, do you feel they went through their normal regulatory process? Well, after what I've said, could you, could you imagine me saying yes? Absolutely not. No. Okay. And now, every single time a booster comes out, Last time I heard there was some bivalent booster came out and it was tested on just a handful of mice. You know, how is that possible? How is it? And there weren't even any human studies on that. How are the regulatory bodies allowing this? Well, A, it's nonsense. obviously nonsense. What I think has happened is that, um, well, I, I, I do know this. There's a duplicate regulatory bodies being set up, non, non-elected, you know, FDA, MHRA, they're what they call competent authorities. They have delegated responsibility from governments to deal with certain aspects concerned with, with, with drugs. Now, this duplicate um, body, the International Coalition for Medicines Regulatory Affairs, was set up in 2016 by Dr. Ian Hudson, who was at the time chief executive of the MHRA in the UK. And um, so he he was doing, you know, he was working for two bosses. Now, he um, he set up this body, which seems to be duplicate. It's got all the members, are all the regulatory authorities around the world. It was set up originally by the World Health Organization and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Of course. <laughs> and um, And it seems... They have hollowed out. They've managed to sort of make themselves the uh, surrogate uh, um, authority, global authority. Ian Hudson was the first chair. The chair now is Emma Cook, Miss Emma Cook, who was also the chief, uh, the executive director of the European Medicines Agency. So she has two jobs at the same time. One which is the official. Uh, European Medicines Agency job, and one is the unelected, illegitimate International Coalition for Medicines Regulatory Authorities. And, and you've only got to Google those initials or the full name. And, and you will see in 2012, it was there was a meeting in Brazil with the WHO, and then uh, and the, the current chair, uh, executive director of European Medicines Agency, worked for the WHO for the period, and she also worked for a lobbying body for the pharmaceutical industry. So so there's a revolving doors yeah. between regulatory bodies and the industry. Yeah, yeah. Some could yeah. argue, but they get expertise, and, and it's only right that someone who's got the expertise in the pharma industry ends up becoming part of the regulatory body. Do you not think that's reasonable? Because they've got the experience and knowledge? Or do you see it that, oh, they'll... They've got their chums still in the farm industry and they'll do them a favour. Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Because this is a commercial industry and when they work in farm, if a regulator moves into a pharmaceutical company, like Scott Godley has moved from FDA as, as the commissioner 
to Pfizer, he's not going to be able to use any of his skills at Pfizer because, you know, that's not the role. And um, if they were suddenly complying with, you know, doing things the kosher way that were that we, that we spoke about, but that that isn't the evidence. So is that more like a reward? You yeah. come on the board. Oh well, you'd have to say that, wouldn't you? And I, I don't, I don't think anyone would describe it any other way. So okay, can I ask you about drugs? Where are most drugs, like the basic molecule drugs, made now? I keep hearing things like India is the main drug developer and maker of drugs. Is that true, or are we still making Not- lots of drugs here? And is their oh. quality of drugs just as good over there as they are over here? Well, we have to go back again to, well, I won't go too much. When the industry started to outsource its manufacture, it moved offshore, what they called in those days. And uh, the move was to uh, to Asia, local, what they were calling low-cost country sourcing, which, of course, is not low-cost anymore because the, the China... India, other Asian countries have, you know, they've um, become more successful. But I, I co-chaired a conference in Cincinnati, which was co-sponsored by FDA and Xavier University in, in Cincinnati. I co-chaired that from 2011 to 2013. And this was the big issue, outsourcing, moving offshore. And I think then... 80% of, for the US, 80% of raw materials were sourced from China. Is it just China? And 40% of finished products were sourced from China. You have to say China? <laughs> China. <laughs> like Donald Trump. No, I, I, yeah. So anyway, um, and that's not changed. Uh, it, uh, and really, India now is outsourcing to China because India, Manufacture more the finished products and supply in more the Western world, but the the dynamic is basically the same. These the the thing is the starting materials, the raw materials. Those you can't even start to make a drug unless you've got those. So that puts you in a strong position of power, doesn't it? So and so the power in making drugs is in Asia, um, and that's the way it's the West. The West actually made it that way by going offshore in the first place. And as such a profitable industry, why would you go offshore to buy your active ingredients, you know, to, to shave pennies off the cost of a drug? Because the, the raw material cost is, you know, is almost negligible in what you pay for a pharmaceutical product. So why would you do that? And, you know, an eminent professor who, who I've Got to know quite well, Professor Andrew Cox, which is a, he's a guru in uh, procurement and supply. He, he basically said that you know that outsourcing was a major strategic error that the industry is just not recovered from. Oh. So why did they do all this fragmentation, outsourcing? You know, it sounds like everything's not under the one roof. R and D development is it? Is it just literally just saving money? Is it about you're less accountable? You can oh. pass a buck and say, oh, it's not us. Those guys didn't do their job properly. They didn't do the safety testing properly. It's their fault. I mean, is it all of these no, things? I mean, what's the main reason for it? Okay. There was an event in uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, a company called Smith Klein French launched a drug called Tagamet. 
for uh, acid indigestion. I've heard of that. Uh, yeah, and that sold really well, and that became you know a, a high selling drug. It became a blockbuster. Five years later, and it took twelve years to develop Tagamet, and the team in place were really experienced, skilled team. Five years later, Glaxo launched a drug called Zantac, competitor drug, and within three or four years, it was outselling Targament three to one. And it was put down to the superior sales and marketing effort that Glaxo put in to detail to doctors on the difference in side effects between Targament and uh, Zantac. So they targeted a weakness in the competitor and hallelujah, they had success. So they had they built up this big sales and marketing team. And that sent a message to the whole of the industry to say, ooh, if you've got a patent and a sales and marketing team for an approved product, you can na name your price. And both those products became blockbusters. They, they made tens of billions of dollars between them. But the industry copied the Glaxo model, which was patent molecules and sales and marketing. So the patenting is in the discovery research. And obviously the sales and marketing is in these huge marketing teams that they've got now. So the industry, the big pharma companies flooded themselves with sales and marketing people and molecular modelers, uh, research and, you know, discovery research people and thought, hmm, these manufacturing plants and this distribution, we don't need those because all we need is a patent and, and uh, sales and marketing. We'll sell them all off and they sold them all off. And we saw in the UK, we saw, you know, they used to be planted, well, all, all over the UK. They used to, they, they used to call it the pill plant in, uh, up in Northumberland. Um, they made the pill, pill as it was, the contraceptive pill, in the same plant when it was owned by Pfizer, and then Pfizer sold it to an Indian company, which is now called Pyramil, which became a contract manufacturer. But they closed the active ingredient manufacturing element there. So instead of it all being done on one site, it became two, three, four sites involved in, 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 in the manufacture. So that's how it's frag that's how the, frag uh, the supply chain is fragmented because the contract manufacturers have worked with centers of excellence. There's a center of excellence for active ingredient, one for drug product, one for packaging. So you find now these developer drug, you're having to work all over the world, whereas before you could have worked on the same. Like when I worked for Bayer, 1980 to 1996. We used to make Alka-Seltzer, and we made the whole thing from start to finish. We bought the citric acid, the aspirin, and um, and the sodium bicarbonate in the back door, and we shipped finished products to the pharmacies around the UK. And we used to ship to other bioentities in Europe, and they'd have similar structure in their countries where they'd have their own... Um, Transport to, you know, send to pharmacies and it was fully integrated, joined up. And over the last 40 years since I, when, when I joined Bayer, it was fully integrated. The time I left, it was heavily fragmented and it's continued to fragment ever since. 
Do you think it's a health and safety issue? Do you think there's a, a, a risk to patients with the current model? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If, if you could change things, what would you do? I'd, and I've written about this, I'd change this, the patent law because what, what the industry has done over 40 years, it's, it's gamed patent law. When I mentioned penicillin, mm. where Moya got the patent for the process, Mm. And it was the same for Targamet, the same for Zantac. It was the process that was patented. So they knew how to make the drug before it was, it went into, um, before they got a patent. The Americans like to call it patent. So I I, I tend to, so, um, but, so what the industry does, it doesn't know if it can make the drug. It starts to develop it and develop it, and it, it sort of like evolves. The process evolves, and by the time they get to market, they realize they couldn't manufacture a safe drug in the first place, and it fails. That's why 249 out of 250 development projects fail. We have to go back and say, look, what they use, the mechanism they use is what's called compound claims, where you can claim a molecule as yours. So any big pharma company, if you've got the 60,000 quid or whatever it is to buy a patent, you can say, look, this is the chicken wire diagram of the compound. This is our theory on the mode of, on the mechanism of action. And for Alzheimer's, it was something called amyloid beta wrapping itself around brain cells. And we want a patent for that. And they get a patent and then... They have to do something with that molecule and make it work, even yeah, if it doesn't. Absolutely. So what you're yeah. saying is instead of patenting um, a molecule and an idea, they should actually patent um, um, an actual end production line that will result in a compound that works. Absolutely, yeah. Now, what other industry does? I mean, if you went in the patent office with, with any other industry, I said, I've got this idea on this. I'm going to, it's got to be a commercializable. That's what the patents are around. And they, and they say, well, how are you going to commercialize this? Well, I've got this idea. I've got this molecule. Well, what are we going to do with the molecule? We don't know yet. They, you know, give us a patent and we'll tell you in, in five years or ten years' time. Mm. You know, it's, it, it's... It's back to front. Yeah, it is back to front. And people don't realize that. So that's important, changing the patent law. And what about changing the way the drug developers are working um, and having everything under one roof, you think that'd be better as well? Yeah, well, I think it, it, if you if you look at changing the patent, uh, changing it to the process, this will drive the right behaviours in anyone developing drugs. This is Russell Aikoff's principle that change the rules and the system will change itself. Mm. So the ultimate rule is the fact that you won't get a, a patent for the drug until you've come in here and you've described the process and you've showed me data that that process is going to produce a safe, effective drug up to a certain level. I mean, you know, you, up to a level that is you is acceptable to a, an engineer who, who, who is, a, or a group of engineers who, same way, that's what Smith Klein, the French did. What about, what about things like um, the regulatory bodies? Do they need to be changed or anything? Do they, do they need to be revamped? Oh, uh, absolutely. Well, uh, the only thing I'd say was the FDA, FDA, if we're FDA, we go back to the days of Dr. Janet Woodcock, who's still, still there, but she introduced a number of initiatives to try and get the industry to change, to think about manufacture. And 
based on you know she wrote with co-wrote the Critical Path Initiative in two thousand and four, and she's going to contribute to my next book on that on writing on why she did that. But she recognised that the industry was in a bad way in terms of manufacture, but you know the industry becomes so profitable. But what I'm saying is, I think there's enough core competence still in FDA at the lower levels. The, you know, these two inspections I mentioned, those inspectors know their stuff when they go in there. They know what they're looking for and they picked up all the issues. So I think we've just got to go back to basics, to the basics of regulation and the fact that the core of it is licensing with experienced evaluators, people who can uh, do the evaluation based on safety, supply chain and clinical and also inspections, inspecting the facilities, the clinical, you know, the, the 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 clinical sites. They all have to be inspected, and at the moment they're all doing virtual inspections using AI. You know, uh, Microsoft Hololens. That's what the MHRA use for for um, their inspections. What's a Microsoft Hololens? It's virtual reality and machine learning. It's a Microsoft product that uh, that I- MHRA used. But how can you check a facility like that? How can you check what's in, talk to the people on the ground? And that just, you can't, you can't, it's a nonsense. It's a nonsense. I mean, what happens is the people at the facility will put a camera, someone, one of the managers will put a camera on the head and they'll say, oh, sh- the, the, the MHRA will say, well, sh- show us your, that machine. We, okay. Well, oh, and then you, <laughs> you put the camera and then, but they're only going to show you the things they want you to see. And the the idea behind inspection is that you can go into any door, any door, and any, any cupboard, door. and anywhere, yeah. any anywhere you like, every nook and cranny. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for God's sake, it just gets worse and worse. What about the revolving doors? Would you change the revolving doors between regulators and pharma people working? Yeah, but, but that's that's a given, isn't it? That's a given. Um, uh, obviously, it's not. Oh God. It's, if you had a wish list, didn't it? You'd do all these things, um, and uh, you know. I, I think only politicians can change. I've, I've again, I've written about this. Until there's a consultation on patent law, this compound claims the fact that no one's no one's benefiting from this. You know, farmers uh, CEOs now are under so much pressure to deliver blockbuster profits. I don't know how they sleep at night. Investors expect, you know, far too much for an industry that's going to be sustainable because only any industry is only sustainable if they've got loyal customers that they can uh, satisfy in the long term. What's happened is we're at a tipping point now. Less and less products are coming to market because no one's incentivized to do the manufacturing distribution because they're all paid anyway. There's almost nothing coming to market. And these gene therapies have been the last chance saloon to deliver blockbuster profits. Do you think that's what it's all about? So I just read the government website and it says Moderna to open, you know, um, vaccine research and manufacturing center in UK. Woohoo! NHS patients to have access to next generation of mRNA vaccines. I mean, this is a UK government website press release. And it's basically advertising and saying how amazing and wonderful it is. Like, they're so super happy. Like, why are they happy about a private company opening a, a, a research development and manufacturing center? You know, it's a, it's a private pharmaceutical company. Why are they so happy about this? Like, surely that's just 
<laughs> that doesn't make well, sense to me. Well, the other thing people don't realise is that three years ago, the government built its own VMEC Vaccine Manufacturing Innovation Centre in Harwell, and they sold it off to Catlin Pharma Solutions last year. A fire set. This, so they built the facility to manufacture vaccines three, four years ago. Didn't take off, and they sold it off. And now... Why did they even build it? I, I don't know whether the government are doing that. You know, I, I think they've uh, fallen in love with gene, gene therapies. As, as the way the UK can become number one in the world in life sciences and then say, look, we've done Brexit, we've left Europe, and hey, in this industry, the world's most profitable industry, we are number one, but we're not number one. When I first entered the industry, GSK was number one in the world. It's now number 10. It was Glaxo initially. It's now number 10 and still appears to be struggling to keep in the top 10. So, so all these mRNA vaccines and gene therapies, is it, are they just easy and quick to produce? The regulatory um, system is less rigorous when it comes to vaccines. And that's why they just think of this as a, a moneymaker. Is that what it is? Because to me, it seems like a very flawed platform. It doesn't, it's never been proven to be effective. It's not safe. There are inherent risks and dangers, whether you look at the mRNA modified RNA or you look at the LNP aspect. I mean, there's some major concerns and questions there. But you've got something that's, let's just give it the benefit of the doubt, isn't a finished product yet, okay? That's me being really generous, by the way. Um, but it's being rolled out for everything, for you know heart disease, for cancer, for the, all the, they want all the vaccines now to be this modified RNA. What, what the hell is that all about? Is it literally just money? Did you see oh. it as an easy plucking? Let's go for it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the other thing I should say is that the head of uh, uh, the FDA, the head of biologics, which includes vaccines, is a guy called uh, Dr. Peter Marks, who uh, for the next year will be talking, he'll be speaking at the Advanced Therapies Conference in London. Uh, he spoke at it last year. And he spoke virtually there the year before. He's basically all behind these. But he's a doctor. He's a you know he's a qualified as a medical doctor, as far as I know. So you know physicians are not, uh, unless they that they are sort of have got the right background, they're not suited to regulate because they don't know really much very much about manufacture. No, 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 no. You almost so, got you almost got that sentence right. Doctors don't know very much about anything. <laughs> well. We have got, because they've been sort of educated by the industry and, you know, a doctor knows no more about the drugs that you take than you when you get your patient information leaflet. You take it home, you read that. Yeah. That's what the doctor knows and nothing more. And it's a shame. Well, it's more than a shame. It's uh, it's, it's criminal, really. So, um, yeah. Do you think things are going to turn around anytime soon? Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I think... As I say, I, I mentioned when we first um, met that I'm working with Daniel O'Connor, who's the CEO of Triosite News, which is an ethical publication in the US. And uh, he's working with investors. And what's been unearthed is that private equity has been hugely 
uh, active in buying these contract manufacturers and squeezing them, making sure that they make a lot of money irrespective of whether they're doing the right thing. And there's a company called Blackstone Life Sciences, which is built up to further invest in these companies that are providing services to the pharma companies. So, And they need each other. They need the big pharma companies to make the profits, to the revenues and the profits. And then the service provider needs to charge them lots of money based on the profits they're making. And they're all happy, thank you very much. Uh, so, but this is coming out that, and, and there's a report I, I can give you, give you a link to written by a, 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 a UK organization where they've made this really clear. I, I think it, I, I sense people are waking up to it. You know, people in, uh, there's been a lot of suppression, a lot of censorship, but you can't keep these, you know, this is against nature what they're doing. You can't make products that, that damage and kill people, and it goes on forever as a, a profit-making opportunity. It has to stop at some point. Yeah, you would think so. So to me, it's it's funny. I feel like Big Pharma profits from human illness and misery, and they don't want you to get better, because if you get better, you're a customer lost. And not only do they profit from sick people, now with vaccines, you're profiting from healthy people. you just got a bigger yeah. market. Yeah, so, yeah. like, you don't need to focus on people who are just sick. You sell it to all the healthy people, too. You know, the children, the pregnant women, the unborn kids, the children, you know, the, yeah, the adults, yeah, the elderly, sure. everybody. Everybody has to take it. doesn't matter if you're sick or not. You need to take this product. And that, that to me, is very sinister. It's just, you know, people have their own theories and agendas. I think it comes down to money, 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 money. And they want to extract as much money out of us, the cattle, the livestock, as possible, regardless of whether it makes us sick or not. It's, it's quite ridiculous. But we need to be able to hold these people to account, the governments, the officials. I think the governments are in the pocket of these big farmers. They're so profitable, so rich. Your Bill Gates, all these foundations, mm. they've all got an ear in the politicians. They're all choosing, and the, and the media, it's, they're all complicit. They're all, they're all in on, on the party. Everyone's in on the party. Everyone's invited except us. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll say one thing. I don't think, in terms of government, I don't think they realize how uh, dangerous these are. I think they are, they've been seduced by people in the industry who've said this is the next advancement in the world of medicine. Mm. And I don't think they've really understood that they've been deceived to the extent they have, you know, where Bill Gates is on speed dial terms with Boris Johnson, with all these other politicians, he's probably saying, you know, these are perfectly safe, we need to do it, blah, 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 and they're believing it. Because I cannot believe any politician other than some of them <laughs> Who would knowingly do this, and knowing that they're—I I don't know—maybe I'm being naive. <laughs> My wife tells me I'm naive sometimes, but I, I think there's been a lot of smoke and mirrors over the last forty years in pharma industry, and no one realizes now that you can make very dangerous drugs if you don't follow very careful rules. Right. Listen, Headley. The last question I always ask—we've been talking for an hour and a half, by the way. 
is well, imagine you're on your deathbed. You've hit a grand old age of 117, right? And you're surrounded by your family, your children, grandchildren, all that kind of stuff. Before you pass away and meet your maker, what advice would you give to your family, health or otherwise? Yeah, good question. I'd say stay healthy, um, stay happy, uh, never take a pharmaceutical product or any product that has been manufactured that claims to do you good because, you know, I can see what could happen is that people will move to more natural remedies, herbal, and they are equally dangerous if they aren't made to the same standard. So whatever you put in your body, unless it's a cake that you made yourself that you've, you know, you've tested all the raw materials, be sure that you know it's not going to do you any any harm. And I think um, my family know, uh, they'd say, we'd expect you to say that. And, uh, okay, it's good advice. Amazing. No, I like that. I think that's a very, very good point you make, that, you know, people are drifting into the whole wellness world and alternative health. But don't assume that they'll be selling you something that's any better or any healthier for you. You know, a lot of the supplements have fillers and binders and crap. Yeah, them. absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, you know, for example, the best protein ball you can get is an egg. Just get a nice free range organic egg, you know, just, you know, try and get to root basics, you know, just something that comes out the ground, something that eats grass and pasture and you make from scratch. I mean, I made you a cup of coffee and I had to apologize. I didn't have sugar for you. <laughs> and also the chickens were clacking outside and I'm sure you, you're getting plenty of eggs yourself. We're getting terrific eggs. They're, they're very much loved chickens, I have to admit. Headley, thank you so much for coming out here. It's, it's been really nice chatting to you. And it's been kind of like depressing as well when you realize here we are in 2023 and the basics, the basics are so fundamentally wrong. You know, the common sense has just been thrown out the window. And the only thing that can make sense is that there's all this corruption and, you know, problems that we're seeing are just driven by greed and money. And, and that's sad because you think with every passing year, you know, human beings as a species will have learned, have become wiser, but we're not, it seems like we're regressing. We're going backwards. Yeah. Everything's cyclical, I think in life. And I, I can see a return to more, um, human values, you know, the, the, the type that we are used to. And um, I'm just hoping it'll come sooner rather than later. On that note, we'll end. Thank you so much, Headley. Thank Everyone, you, thank you so much for listening. Thank Bye. you, my friend. Okay, you take care. Bye.